at our church, I think regularly, Joel Osteen is derided for wrongly having a book that describes the idea that you as a Christian can have your best life now. And he's wrong in giving out that theology because his approach basically makes God and his word a means to get what you really want. Whatever you want, God will give you. And so if you kind of give yourself to God, he'll give you this best life. And so it's a, it's a wrong way to think about the Christian life. But in light of the praise service next week, it's good for us to remember that the Christian life is also not just pie in the sky by and by when you die, but it is also steak on the plate while we wait. And the idea is that there is still goodness in the Christian life in our world today. Yes, the best is yet to come, but the present can be good too. And in a sense, part of the problem is if we are looking for the good life rather than looking for God, we'll miss it. But if we're looking for God and seeking after him, we actually find an incredible life now. And the passage in Proverbs we're going to look at this evening points to that truth. Helps us to see, if I can say it this way, it's not your best life now, but it is your best life for now. That in this life, the best life you can have is a life that recognizes God's wisdom and seeks to follow it. If you would open up your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 3, beginning in verse 13. Proverbs chapter 3 and verse 13. I'm going to do the best this evening to get us through the end of this chapter, because I think it is all connected. And so we're going to move fairly quickly, uh, but want to make sure you get a sense of what's going on. And I think really, in a sense, what ties these things together is the idea of blessing and honor that comes from seeking God's wisdom and keeping God's wisdom. That the best life you can have for now is to treasure and keep God's Wisdom. And in verses 13 to 18, we find a, a hymn of praise to wisdom that shows us the general blessing of wisdom, so we should desire it and value it. Beginning in verse 13, it says, How blessed is the man who finds wisdom. If you look at the very end at verse 18, it says, And happy are all who hold her, her feet. And that's really the, the, the word that comes from the same root. And I think that's designed to kind of tie these in together. It's almost as if they're bookends for these verses to tell us this is all talking about the same thing. It's talking about the blessed life, the optimal life. And that life is one, is, is for the man who finds wisdom. And finding here is that it didn't just happen to stumble upon it. It's not as like the, the Beverly Hillbillies where he just happened to shoot while he was hunting and here's oil. But he was actually looking for it. He was searching for it. And after searching for it, he found wisdom. And the man who gains understanding, and again, the idea of wisdom and understanding is often tied together in the book of Proverbs. And this is verses 14 and 15. Solomon tells us that, that wisdom is, is more valuable than precious metals. And that's why, in part, wisdom is, it blesses those who find it for her profit is better than the profit of silver, and her gain better than fine gold. It's interesting that he uses the idea of profit or gain. It's almost as if interest. You can think about it this way. What kind of interest do you get from your investment? And Solomon says, the best interest you can get is by investing in wisdom. 
There is no better long-term investment. And we certainly recognize we don't often get the kind of return we'd want on our investments in this life. Because riches in this life are fickle. But the gain from wisdom is certain. And so it is more valuable and more profitable than things like silver or gold or precious jewels. She is more precious than jewels. It's valuable and it is rare, unfortunately. And then finally, at the end of verse 15, nothing you desire compares with her. If you might think, well, I can think of something better than gold or silver. Someone says, but you can't think of anything better than wisdom. Anything you could possibly want in this world, wisdom's better than that. And so what should you want and desire? You should want and desire wisdom. Why? Because in verses 16 and 17, we see these benefits. Long life is in her right hand. And in her left hand are riches and honor. And in Scripture, it's maybe helpful for you to remember that the right hand is the stronger hand. Uh, I remind myself of this regularly because my name actually means son of the right hand. That's what Benjamin means, uh, which really is basically saying favorite son. So I tell my parents that's what they named me. I'm their favorite son. They, they told me that. The right hand is the, the stronger hand. And so in the right hand is long life. And in the left hand is slightly less valuable, but still really helpful, riches and honor. And those two together make for a really good life. A long life with riches and with honor it is a great thing to have. And yet, I think it's one commentary to point out, this is a really helpful verse to kind of summarize the Old Testament way of thinking about these things, the way that Proverbs talks about this. The gifts of the left hand, riches and honor, are highly valued. And yet more valuable than those are long life. And more valuable than long life is what? Wisdom. And so you don't seek for a long life. You don't seek for riches and honor. You seek for wisdom. And you find them thrown in. That's essentially what Solomon found. When God came to Solomon, Solomon could have asked for long life or riches and honor. But instead he asked for wisdom. He saw what was most valuable. And when we pursue wisdom, we find in wisdom's right hand is long life, and in wisdom's left hand are riches and honor. And her ways are pleasant ways, and all her paths are peace. The life that she allows you to live is a pleasant life. It's a good life. It's an enjoyable life. And the paths are paths of peace and well-being. Why? Because in verse 18, she is a tree of life to those who take hold of her. And happy are all who hold her fast. Now it's interesting that, that Solomon describes wisdom as being a tree of life. At a minimum, I think that would point to the fact that it's the source of life. Life comes from wisdom. And that shouldn't surprise us. We see this often in, in Proverbs. There, there's a path of life and there's a path of death. And wisdom leads to the path of life. But the tree of life probably would make us kind of think of the other place in Scripture where it talks about the tree of life, and that was in the Garden of Eden. And, and sin actually separated Adam and Eve from the tree of life. So they could not really enjoy the, the fullness of life and the, the eternal life that God intended for people to have. And yet, I say, in a sense, we might say it this way then, 
the closest thing we can get to Eden right now is wisdom. That if we follow God's path of wisdom, we can enjoy the, the tree of life in this life, anticipating for when we actually will find it again in Revelation. Revelation, we will actually experience the fullness of the tree of life. But right now, if we take hold of wisdom, and if we hold fast to her, we will find she is a tree of life, and we will be happy. And so what does it mean to take hold of her and hold her to fast? I think it means a commitment to it, a, a determined obedience a willingness to say, I will do what God calls me to do even when there are plenty of opportunities to go other ways. And even when there's pressure to go other ways, I'm going to take hold of wisdom. I will hold fast to wisdom because there is incredible blessing from wisdom. And in verses 19 and 20, I think what we find is a reason for that blessing. Potentially, the idea of the tree of life may have, have pointed to this idea as well. Solomon begins to talk about creation. The Lord, by wisdom, founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens. The heaven and the earth, everything. That's the idea. All, all of creation. All of creation. The Lord founded and established by wisdom and by understanding. And in verses 20, there's a little bit of debate about exactly what he means. By his knowledge, the deeps were broken up. The only other place that language is used is in Genesis 7, verse 11, where uh, it talks about the flood, that the deeps are broken up as the, the rain comes down from heaven. And, and so you might think, well, Solomon's talking about the flood, and the problem is I don't know why he'd be talking about the flood right now. Um, some people say maybe it's more the idea when he talks about he separated the waters above from the waters below. That might be kind of what Solomon's describing. And I'm going to be honest, I don't know exactly, other than it's pointing to God's power in the world, his sustaining of the world, and he does it by wisdom. And certainly the second part of the verse would point to his sustaining work. The skies drip with dew. And it's not just like a, it's not really like a drip. That's probably not the best way to think about it. It's more like a, an ongoing pouring. It's not a trickle. It's actually a, a, a continual sustaining. And water is the source of life for our world. And so the Lord is continually sustaining creation by wisdom. He created it by wisdom. He's sustaining it by wisdom. And the reason I think Solomon points to, to this reality is to, to, in a sense, ground why the person who finds wisdom is so blessed. Because the God who made the world did so in his wisdom. And so the way that we should live in this world has to reflect the wisdom of the one who made it. He made the world a certain way. He designed it to function in a certain way. And so his wisdom is what tells us how we are to live in this world. And when we live in the world in that way, we find the blessing that he intends for us to have in this world. There is a structure and order to creation that God in his wisdom designed. And so we should follow that structure and order. So there is a blessing for those who find wisdom. In verses 21 to 26, Solomon tells us one aspect of that blessing, and that is security and safety. And just like we saw in 13 and 18, Solomon kind of closes off this section with beginning with the word and ending with the word. And that word is keep. In verse 21, keep sound wisdom. And in verse 26, he will keep your foot from being caught. And so again, he's kind of sectioning this, this part off, and he's pointing to the blessing of safety and security if you keep wisdom. 
My son, let them not vanish from your sight. The idea of vanish from your sight uh, really has the idea of like, you know, keep your eye on it. Make sure you continually pay attention to it. And, and part of the idea is certainly to keep it in your mind. To keep thinking about it. And what is it that you are supposed to, to make sure it doesn't vanish from your sight? Sound wisdom and discretion. And perhaps there might be an indication, we talked earlier about the fact that the person who finds wisdom is blessed. And here the point is, don't lose it once you found it. That just because you're on the path of wisdom doesn't mean you'll stay on the path of wisdom. You've got to make sure that you keep on that path. You've got to guard the wisdom that you have found. Why? Verses 22, so they will be life to your soul and adornment to your neck. It will be good for you from the very inner part of your being and in a blessing and beauty on, on your neck. In verse 23, you will walk in your way securely and your foot will not stumble. When you lie down, you will not be afraid. When you lie down, your sleep will be sweet. Potentially, the, the idea that he talks about both walking and lying down might be kind of saying everything you do in between. When you're busy and when you're resting. And all of life, what will you find? Security. Your foot will not stumble. And when you lie down, you will not be afraid. When you lie down, your sleep will be sweet. And we live in a world that I think is, is filled with fears and worries and anxieties. And are there reasons for us to be concerned in our world? The answer is yes, there are problems in our world. And yet, if we know God through his word, we can sleep sweetly. Our sleep can be sweet and pleasurable. Our sleep does not need to be the kind in which we're constantly worried and afraid, filled with terrors, anxieties, and nightmares. And why is that so important? Because when are you the most vulnerable? When you're asleep. It's a constant reminder to us, day after day, that, that we don't have the strength and energy to keep doing things without resting. And we don't have the ability to control things. And when we sleep, what's happening? God's still in control. God's still in charge. And if we know God and we're trusting in him and we're following his word, we can lie our head at the pillow at night and not be worried about what's going to happen. We can sleep a sweet sleep. Verse 25, we do not need to be afraid of sudden fear nor of the onslaught of the wicked when it comes. Not being afraid is really almost a kind of a command. Do not be afraid. And the point there is, don't be afraid, but instead, trust in the Lord. And don't be afraid of sudden fear, the kind of thing that's unexpected. And part of the question is, what is unexpected? I think it is the next part of the verse, the onslaught of the wicked. Now, the NASB translates it as the idea as if the wicked is about to attack you. Now, you might have a translation that translates it, the judgment of the wicked. 
in a sense, the onslaught that's going to come on the wicked. And I think that's probably a better way to understand uh, what Solomon was saying here. That, that there is going to come in time in which the wicked are judged. And when that comes, we don't need to be afraid. We're secure. Why are we secure? Verse 26, for the Lord will be your confidence. Or you might even see the note in your nasty Bible, the Lord is at your side. Why don't you need to be afraid? Because God's with you. He is at your side and he will keep your foot from being caught. He will protect you. He will make you secure. And just as there's no greater treasure than God's wisdom, there's no better security than God's protection. So if you want your best life for now, you can enjoy the blessing of God's safety and security if you keep his wisdom. In verse 27, Solomon again transitions. And here I think he begins to describe what a life of wisdom looks like as it's lived out in society. And we can almost think about it this way. He just described the blessing of wisdom and providing safety and security. Now he's talking about the blessing of wisdom for those around you, for society. And what is that blessing? Well, that blessing is you will actually genuinely care for each other. Verse 27, there's a series of commands here. Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is, when in, when it is in your power to do it. Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is, when it is in your power to do it. Now this is, I think, a helpful verse to, to come right after what Solomon described, the idea of safety and security, because it does remind us again, as we see often in Proverbs, that the life of safety and security isn't necessarily a life free from ever having needs. Because the idea is within Israel, there's going to be people who at times actually have need. They need good. And there are others who need to give them those good things. And the good here is a, a, a tangible good. It's probably just a way to describe any kind of, of beneficial thing for the other person. It could be uh, money. It could be a good action. Uh, it could be um, administering justice. It could be dealing with uh, hurt. Some kind of good. Some way of demonstrating good and well-being for the other person. And the command here is, don't withhold it. So the opposite would be, make sure you give it to those to whom it is due. Now that phrase, uh, I think probably is the basic idea of there is a, a moral right they have to it. They have a claim to it. Now, I don't think that would just be limited to like they worked for it and earned it. That would certainly be part of it. And in, and in the Old Testament, you see a command is saying, pay your workers their, their, their wages. But I think it probably would also kind of have the idea of they have a moral claim, like Jesus might say, to love your neighbor, and he gives the, the parable of the Good Samaritan. And so in a sense, if you have a good to help this person, and they have a moral claim to it, then you would give it to them. Now, who would not have a moral claim? Well, 2 Thessalonians 3 would give us one example. Someone who's not willing to work shouldn't eat. And so this isn't simply saying you have to have an open hand to everyone. 
it is giving a kind of stipulation to those to whom it is due. And so there might be times in which you have to say, look, I'm not going to give this to you because you need to do it yourself. But there are many other times in which that's not the case. And we're called to, to do good. Now there's a second stipulation. When it is in your power to do it. You certainly can't give what you do not have. But it's probably important for us in our day to, to realize that's often less often than we think. It's probably pretty rare that we can't help. Often we can help, we just aren't sure we want to. It might hurt a little bit. It might make us struggle for a bit. And yet, if we have the power to do good, to help someone else, and they have a moral claim, then we are to give it. And so if I could maybe just point out two kind of brief applications of this. Certainly this is a command for us to pay our debts. That if we have the ability to pay our debts, we need to pay it. And that we can't say, well, sorry, I'm not going to do that. But it would also encourage us to make sure that we are generous and open with the things the Lord has given us. Our money, our time, our ability. And if there is an opportunity for us to genuinely do good to someone else, that the way of wisdom, the blessed life, would be a life that does that. Would be a life that does what is good for others. And in verse 28, do not say to your neighbor, go and come back and tomorrow I'll give it to you. When you have it with you, that we're not going to delay. We're not going to put it off. We're not going to try to keep it for ourselves in some way. Or perhaps try to, to keep this person under our power. And that's really, the, I think, probably the, the biggest idea here is you're trying to get out of doing it. You've got the ability to do it, and you're saying, oh man, come back tomorrow. Because you're hoping maybe they won't come back. We're hoping you can kind of use it for a little bit longer when they actually need it. And so be quick to give when you have the ability to give. Now, I would say, verse 28, I don't think it would rule out something that is probably wise for us to practice in our day. Uh, maybe you've heard someone uh, say this before. Uh, sometimes people who are, are coming and asking for help, the worst thing we can do is simply to give them money because that's not really what they need, that they need something else. And one of the, the ways that often you can kind of practice to figure out, because this person have a genuine need, or are they just looking for enablement to continue down a path that's destructive for them, is to say, well, hey, could you come back tomorrow and we can sit down and, and talk through things? I don't think this verse would be saying you can't do something like that. Because what's your reason for saying, could you come back tomorrow? It's to figure out, if I can say it this way, is this something to whom it is due? Is this a genuine need? You're not doing it because you're saying, I hope I don't have to give it to this person. If you're doing it because you're saying, I hope I don't have to give it to this person, this verse would tell you that's wrong. But if you're saying, I want to try to be a genuine help, and this is a way for me to figure out how can I best help, I think then it's perfectly fine to say, I've got the 20 bucks right now, but I'm not sure it's more helpful for me to give you the 20 bucks. And so why don't we come tomorrow and see if we can figure something out? Because it's probably not an emergency. 
Verses 29 and 30 tell us another way in which we are to live in this world if we're following God's wisdom. In a sense, 27 and 28 were sins of omission, not doing what we should do. 29 and 30 are sins of commission, doing something that is actually harmful to our neighbor. Do not devise harm against your neighbor while he lives securely beside you. Devise harm is the idea of, of plotting. You're thinking of a way in which I could bring, make something bad for him. And it's especially bad because he doesn't see it coming. He lives securely beside you. He thinks everything's fine. And that's actually what you're taking advantage of. And so you're thinking, how can I exploit this person's confidence? How can I take advantage of this person's trust? And it's one of the most wicked things people can do. Which is why, I mean, one of the most wicked things are the scam artists out there who are trying to take advantage of people's gullibility to steal from them. It's a horribly wicked thing to do. And Solomon here tells us we should never think that way. Verse 30, do not contend with a man without cause if he has done you no harm. Now, it could be more broadly just in general contend that there's a chance at least there's kind of a focus on a legal charge. You're bringing an accusation against this person even when they haven't actually harmed you. And again, we see this far too often in our day with frivolous lawsuits. Accusations against someone as if they have wronged me and you're smearing their name and you're bringing them under ill repute even though they've really not done anything wrong. And the path of wisdom isn't thinking about those things. The path of wisdom wants to do no harm to the neighbor. In verse 31, it is a, a strong Command. The, the, the first two, 27 and 28, 29 and 30, uh, kind of said, don't do this, and, and here's some ways to think about it. 31 just tells us basically twice, don't even think about doing this. Do not envy a man of violence, and do not choose any of his ways. Not even a hint. Now, why might someone envy a man of violence? Or perhaps because the man of violence seems like he's getting his way. The man of violence might seem as though he is accomplishing what he wants and he's seeing success. And therefore, we might begin to envy that. It might seem in some way the kind of life that is good. And yet ultimately, it's a life that we should have nothing to do with. Why? Well, verses 32 to the end, at least tell us why we shouldn't do the last command, I think potentially tell us why we shouldn't do all of these commands in this section. And the answer is because God ultimately judges the wicked but embraces the righteous. For the devious are an abomination to the Lord. Who are the devious? People who would harm their neighbors, people who are men of violence, people who withhold good from others. The Lord despises and loathes these people, but he is intimate with the upright. And the language, when it says he is intimate, uh, it's almost the idea is he, he brings you into his secret counsel. He brings you into the inner circle and helps give you counsel and instruction. And so you have this close relationship with the Lord if you are upright. The curse of the Lord is on the house of the wicked, but he blesses the dwelling of the righteous and here we see that it's not just you that is affected by this. 
It's your house. And, and the idea is your belongings and the people in them. That you, your actions here have ramifications for your family. And certainly scripture would tell us that the father and the son ultimately stand on their own. That the father is not punished for the sins of the son. The son's not punished for the sins of the father. And yet there is a continual reminder that the, the actions that fathers take tend to have ripple down effects. And so do you want a curse on your home? Then ignore God's wisdom. Do you want blessing on your home? Then embrace God's wisdom. Verse 34, though he scoffs at the scoffers, yet he gives grace to the afflicted. The New Testament quotes this verse, both in James and 1 Peter, and follows the Greek translation here. It's the idea of God opposes the proud, but it's probably a bit you know, stronger in the Hebrew. He scoffs at them. He mocks them. There is a kind of divine justice. They scoff at God, and so he scoffs at them. And how do they scoff at him? Well, these are the same people, the devious, the, the wicked, those who are men of violence. These are, these are all the same kind of people. And so these are the people who have oppressed others and have harmed others, and now they are getting their just rewards. And yet, he gives grace to the afflicted, those who are poor and oppressed, those who humble themselves before the Lord and recognize their need for him. And this is, again, a, a good balancing reminder. As we're talking about your best life for now, that often includes affliction. Because that's the same people who were blessed in the verse before. But what do you find? You'll find God's grace. You'll find his favor. And finally, in verse 35, the wise will inherit honor. They didn't earn it, but they received it from their father. Honor. Blessing. What happens to others? The fools display dishonor. And there's some question about what exactly it means they display. I think probably the best way is, in a sense, the prize they get is dishonor. Shame. And so, if you want your best life even now, the best life you can have in this life, then you have to treasure and embrace God's wisdom. So if I could give you two kind of closing thoughts. The first is, is a reminder for us that part of our problem is we live in a world that does not value what's truly valuable. That if we think, what's the kind of life I want? We don't think a life of wisdom. But we need to think that. And so we've got to train ourselves to value the things that are truly valuable. To see what matters most in life. But then as well, just a few thoughts for you as, as a parent, as a grandparent, in light of what we see in this passage. I think it's interesting, it talks about the wise will inherit honor. What do you want your children to inherit from you? 
Do you want them to inherit something more valuable than silver and gold? Something more precious than jewels? Do you want to pass down to them God's wisdom? That means you need it. So you can pass it on to them. And this is a great reminder to us that if we care about the safety and security of our children, the best thing we can do is to, to encourage them on the path of God's wisdom. Because when we sleep, we can't watch over our children. And there's always going to be times in which we cannot watch over our children. But God can always watch over our children. And he can do so as they are following his way of wisdom. And if we follow that path of wisdom, then we can bring true blessing on our home. Because the Lord blesses the dwelling of the righteous. Let us treasure and keep God's wisdom. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help our church to be a church that loves your wisdom more than any treasure in this world. Lord, that as, as we consider what, what we as families represent, what we as individuals, what we as a church point to, that it would be clear that we think wisdom is better than anything else we could desire in this world. Lord, we want your provision. We want your care. We want to be able to sleep knowing that we are secure in you and not having fear and anxiety. So, Lord, help us to love your wisdom <laughs> and help us to keep it, not to love it out of our sight. I pray these things in your Son, Jesus' name. Amen.